I remember my first time I felt fear. I was probably four years old. I was at a church meeting, and we got done with the church meeting. We're in a very tight foyer, just packed with people. It was the wintertime, and I had misplaced my parents. And my mother was wearing a fake gray fur coat that uh, went down below her knees, and I am looking desperately to find my parents, and I see a person wearing a fake gray fur coat down to their knees, and I ran up and I grabbed that leg and held on tight. And then I looked up, and I saw a face completely foreign to me. And this woman had the, uh, I'm sure, a wonderful benign smile on her face, but it looked like horror movie, bomb, 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 you know. And I just went crazy with fear, overcome with fear. Um, fear is an overwhelming concern for one's life, one's circumstances, or one's kingdom. Fear puts pressure on ourselves. It, it forces us to respond. At its best, fear protects us from harm. At its worst, fear paralyzes us to serve God. Fear can overwhelm us. And so, I want to share the lesson for today from Judges chapter 6. You may want to open your Bibles there, Judges chapter 6. The lesson for today is this. When we embrace the presence of the Lord, fear is defeated. When we embrace the presence of the Lord, fear is defeated. We are going to be looking at this passage in the life of Gideon in our series in the book of Judges. I invite you to open your Bibles and to stand for the reading of Scripture this morning, Judges chapter 6. We'll begin by reading the first 13 verses together here, and then I'll make our way through most of the rest of the chapter as we make our way through the book as we go uh, along. For now, Judges 6, verses 1 through 13. The people of Israel did what was evil, we might add, again, right, in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of, again, only this time it's Midian, seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the, Midianites, or whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. 
When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Please have a seat. When we embrace the presence of the Lord, fear is defeated. We look here at verses 1 through 10 at the trouble that comes when God sees that we do not listen. There's something that's interesting about verse 1. It talks about they did evil in the sight of the Lord. That is the eyes of the Lord. That means God's opinion. What matters in the ultimate sense is not what you think or what I think. What any of us think about what we're doing right or wrong. What matters is if God thinks that what we're doing is right or wrong. That's the only opinion that matters. The sad repetitive nature of Israel's half-hearted repentance should reveal our own repetitive half-hearted repentance. And the consequences for Israel are equally a warning for us. Verse 1, God's opinion is what matters. Verse 10 is interesting. I'm just going to skip now for just a second to show you that there's this beautiful envelope here. The first one is what's in the eyes of the Lord, that is the opinion of God. This, verse 10 is about the voice of the Lord. Look at the last line there. But you have not obeyed my voice. That's God's guidance. What matters is not all the voices. And boy, we got a lot of voices these days, don't we? a proliferation of voices. What matters is not those voices, not even, by the way, the voices that we like. There are a few voices that you like to listen to, right? A few podcasts you might catch, a few opinion pundits that you enjoy. What matters is not all the voices or even the voices that we like. What matters is the voice of the Lord on any matter. And so we have this envelope here in verse 1, the eyes of the Lord, God's opinion is what matters. Verse 10, the voice of the Lord, God's guidance is what matters. Now you'll notice that Israel is in trouble. These Midianites have come up and have moved the Israelites so fearfully. They're living in such fear, they're living in caves and dens. Whenever they planted crops, the Midianites would wait until the crops were ready, and then they would descend and take all the grain out of the bins, all this, all this hard work for the whole year, 
was taken off, taken away. And you even see Israel at a technological disadvantage here, don't you, in verse 5. They'd come up, they're outnumbered, their lives, they'd come like locusts in number, both they and their camels could not be counted. This time, the technological disadvantage is camels. Those are the semi-tractors of the ancient Near East, as well as the cavalry beasts. Uh, Even today in the Middle East, you'll see that they have camel races, and they're quite remarkable. Look them up. Check out the videos of camel races. These things are amazing, and the camel drivers are incredible. So what you've got is these camels, the semi-tractors and cavalry of the desert highways of the ancient world. These Midianites are coming up like locusts and camels without number. And so you know I have a map. They're coming from the east, which is just off to the right of our map here, and they are moving and sweeping in. They're coming in this way. They're coming up north. They're coming around to the south. They're taking care of all of the hill country, even as far as Gaza, this this, uh, city that's circled over here on the coast. They've basically taken over. They didn't leave a sheep or an ox or a donkey They laid waste the land as they came in. Israel was brought very low. Fear comes when you are overwhelmed. What are you overwhelmed by today? Chances are good that is what you are afraid of. And so they cry to the Lord for help, don't they? Do you see that at the end of verse 6? The people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. What are they crying for? They're not crying for a relationship with God. They're not. They're crying for help to overcome the enemy. What kind of repentance do you have? Do you have the kind of repentance that's described here by Israel? Oh, we've got these Midianites. They're just taken over and we need help. God, just get rid of the Midianites. Do for us what we want done. Is that the kind of God that we have? It's the God that Israel has here. Camels control even parts of the Middle East even today, right? They take over the highways. (laughs) Trouble that comes when God sees that we are not listening to his voice. So what does God do? In verse 7, you would think, okay, the people of Israel have cried out to God for help, and now what's what's God going to do? You know what God sends? God sends a guy to give a sermon. (laughs) That's what he sends. Verse 7, they cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, he sent a sermon. What Israel wants is a deliverer. What they get is a preacher with a message. Somehow, preachers with messages always seem less significant to us than it does to God. He sends forth his word. He shows us himself. And what do we say in response? How about showing us a little victory? How about getting rid of my problem here? That's what we say in response. 
Verses 8 and 9, the message that is preached here is a reminder of God's act of salvation at the Exodus. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up out of Egypt, brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you, drove them out before you. I gave you their land. It's a message, verse 10, that they do not need to be afraid. I am the Lord your God, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. You know, there was a belief then that all gods were local, and so they thought that they could cover their bases. They'll worship the Lord and worship the gods of the Canaanites around them. We'll see how they did that in just a second. And they're worshiping all these gods, and and God is saying to them, don't be afraid because whenever you start to think that there's a whole bunch of gods that you gotta be pleasing, you're gonna be filled with fear. Don't fear those gods, but you have not obeyed my voice. Literally, you, don't, you, you have not listened to my voice. The word listen, shema, is the word for obey. Listen with the intention of obeying. You, you know the story. Uh, Gideon's going to repeat it in just a second. You know the stories. You could pass the Bible quiz, but you're not experiencing in the way of obeying the voice of the Lord. And if you want to underline anything, the point of emphasis here in verse 10 is the words, but you. Um, That's the emphasis in the Hebrew text, but you have not obeyed my voice. When we embrace the presence of the Lord, fear is defeated. When we reject the presence of the Lord, fear overwhelms us. Now, beginning at verse 11, we see an an ordinary man, Gideon, meets an extraordinary visitor, the angel of the Lord. This is amazing to me. Despite no change in Israel's heart, you know, that is, all they want is to be delivered from their problems. They don't really want God. Despite that, God shows up to deliver them. This is pure grace. It's just grace on the part of God to do that. They don't deserve it. They don't have a heart for the Lord. They have a heart to be out of their problem with the Midianites. And yet, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord sent a prophet, verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord came, verse 11, and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Who is this angel of the Lord? We will discover when we get to the Samson narrative that it is, in fact, the Lord, and yet a distinct person from the Lord at the same time. It is, in fact, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, God revealing himself in physical and bodily form. We'll go into detail in that in a couple of weeks. In verse 12, we have this remarkable call of God on a coward. The angel of the Lord is sitting under a terebinth tree, and Gideon is trying to thresh grain from a wine press. So you have to understand, the way that grain was threshed 
normally within Israel was that you had a limestone table, flat area, up on a high area so that the wind could catch it and you would take the grain and you'd toss it up in the air and the chaff would blow away and the grain would come down and you would sweep it up. I want you to imagine for a moment going down into a pit with your grain and then tossing it up, but not too high because you didn't want the Midianites to see it. You're just tossing it up there in this hole. Can you imagine what Gideon looked like? Just covered in chaff and sweat and dust. But he's so fearful that that's the best he can do with what he's got and he's, he's tossing it up little by little and hoping that it'll just separate the grain enough that he could scoop it up. There's nothing more pitiful in all the pages of Scripture, I think, than Gideon in this wine press trying to thresh out the grain. And it's at that moment that the angel of the Lord calls down to Gideon in the wine press. <laughs> and what does he say there at verse 12? The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. <laughs> the angel's doing a remarkable thing. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The presence of the Lord is always the reason given in the Bible for not being afraid. The angel of the Lord sees Gideon for how the Lord will use him, not for how Gideon sees himself. Did you catch that? The angel of the Lord sees Gideon for how the Lord will use him, not for how Gideon sees himself. How does Gideon see himself? As this weak guy who can't do anything, who's scared to death of the Midianites, who's dominated and overwhelmed by his circumstances, who feels like there's no hope. The angel of the Lord sees Gideon differently. He sees him for how God will use him. There's humor and encouragement here, isn't there? By the way, here's a couple of pictures of terebinth trees, kind of big things, you know, and you can see in your mind's eye almost a, a wine press around there in a hole where Gideon would cry out. Here's a little bit of better picture, although it's in a part of the, of the land where there isn't a lot of, the first picture has more of the terrain like where Gideon lived. This was actually an ancient forest, and this is the only tree left. There's reasons for that that we won't go into. An ordinary man meets an extraordinary visitor. Now, you know that Gideon's been thinking because of the quick way he responds to the angel of the Lord in verse 13. While he's been treading, getting, threshing this grain down in the wine press, he's had time to think. And he's thinking about all the problems that he's facing. And the angel says to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon says immediately, <clears throat> Please, my Lord. Verse 13, If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, and given us into the hand of Midian. Do you see how his fear is gripping him? He said, excuse me, sir, <clears throat> if the Lord is with us, why? That's the big question, isn't it? Why has all this happened? And the implication is, let's blame God about it here, right? 
And where are all God's wonderful deeds? And he even quotes the Bible of God's deliverance from Egypt from our, fa our fathers taught us this. You know, so Gideon went to Sunday school. He can pass the Bible quiz, but his current condition is so incongruous with the deliverance of God in the past that the only thing he can conclude is the Lord has forsaken us. And the way he describes it is very graphic in verse 13. You'll see in this chapter all of the times where the word hand is used. You can even circle them sometime. The hand of Midian, the hand of Midian all, all over the place. But here in verse 13, the word hand is different. There are two Hebrew words for hand. The normal one is yod, which is used everywhere else in this chapter. But here in verse 13, Gideon uses the word kaf. The reason is that the word kaf was used to describe severed hands. It's a body count. The Midianites were so cruel that they would sweep in and they would not only take all the grain, they would destroy people and cut off their hands. And that was how they counted how many people they had taken care of. And so, that's a little fifth and sixth grade boy story there, right? The Lord has forsaken us, given us into the severed hands of, of Midian. Verse 14, the Lord, which it's the same as the angel of the Lord, so we know that the angel of the Lord is the Lord here. The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The Lord commands Gideon, go in the strength that you have. It's better, as we learned last week, to participate in God's work, even if we mess up, than never to participate in the mission that God gives us. It's better to participate, even if we mess it up, than never to participate. Go in the strength you have and save Israel. This is an implied promise that God will do this through him. And he says, do I not send you? This is an act in the present, which by its very act is already completed. God already sees it as already done. But look at how Gideon responds in verse 15. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Here's his excuses. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Uh, I don't know if you know, God, what you're working with here, but Manasseh isn't that great of a tribe. My clan, the Abizrites, were kind of the worst of Manasseh, and of the Abizrites, I'm the worst guy here, <laughs> Okay. Do you see how he's got all of excuses and questions lined up? Why has all this happened? Where are his wondrous deeds? The, the only thing I can conclude from the lessons I've learned as a child is that the Lord has forsaken us. We're in the severed hand count of Midian. We're, we're in trouble. And I'm overwhelmed. And I am afraid. Did you notice that Gideon never sees the nation of Israel is culpable. And do you notice that with fear, we always question God's goodness? 
God's answer to the excuses. You remember our lesson today, right? When we embrace the presence of the Lord, fear is defeated. Look at verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. What is God's answer to all these excuses and all these questions? I will be with you. Now, in verses 17 through 27, we see that the weak in faith look for signs from God. Uh, Here's an operating assumption that we're going to have over the next couple of weeks as we look at these Gideon narratives. Gideon is not a man of strong faith, but rather a man of weak faith. That's who he is. We should not look to Gideon as a pattern for knowing God's will. That's, he's, he's not the pattern for us. But what we will see is how God uses people weak in faith. God's told him his will already in the verses 11 through 16. Now in verse 17, what does Gideon do? Gideon asks for a sign. If I've found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. And he gets one in the following verses. Please don't depart from here until I come to you and bring my present and set it before you. And the angel of the Lord says, I'll stay till you return. Watch how God uses this man weak of faith and how God patiently will strengthen his faith. Gideon, verses 18 and 19, prepares a meal as an offering to eat under the terebinth. Gideon went to his house, prepared a young goat, unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket, and the broth he put in a pot. He brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. This could have been the last bit of food Gideon has, right? I mean, we don't know, but you get the idea. This is a pretty big offering considering all the trouble that they're going through with the Midianites. And verses 20 and 21 The angel of the Lord said, take the meat, the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock, pour the broth over them. So put it on the rock and pour the broth on it, and he does. And then the angel of the Lord reaches out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, touched the meat in the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat in the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. That'd wake you up, right? I mean, he gets this sign, the angel of the Lord shooting out fire from the rock by touching his staff to it, and the entire thing is consumed, and oh, and then the angel just disappears. It is at this point that Gideon realizes a bit of who he's dealing with. He thinks he's a dead man because he's seen the angel of the Lord. Verse 22, Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Gideon says, alas, O Lord God, for I've now seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. God speaks from heaven these reassuring words, peace, do not be afraid, you won't die. So Gideon builds an altar there and calls it the Lord is shalom, peace. 
making everything right. And now God speaks again in verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God at the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. What's happening here? Gideon takes two bulls. One belongs to his dad. The second one is seven years old. He uses those two bulls to pull down the pagan altar of Baal that his father has. Do you understand how insidious and how infected Israel was with the worship of the gods of the Canaanites that his own father has an altar to Baal? And this word Asherah means a female consort. In Canaanite uh, uh, religious context, you always had a, a male deity and a female consort that went with it. And this Asherah was made out of wood to demonstrate this together they were going to bring you success and fertility and prosperity. And Gideon takes these two bulls and he pulls down the pagan altar and along with the female consort that's made, consort that's made out of wood and with the wood he builds an altar to the Lord, he takes the second bull, the one that's seven years old, he cuts it up and sacrifices it using the wood that got pulled down and he gets ten guys to help him in the process. That sounds like good news, right? Good things. But the scripture reminds us He did it at night because he was afraid of his family and his community. We too live in fear of what other people think of us. We too think of political incorrectness. (laughs) But also... I also want you to think along with that how it's better to participate in God's work even if we mess up than do nothing. It's better that Gideon did this even if he did it at night, even if he was afraid, than not doing it. You might ask, what's this emphasis on bulls? You know, why are they, why are they so interested in the bulls? You know, the, the bull of the father and the seven-year-old bull and all that. Well, I want to tell you a little story. In 1977, I think it was, there was an Israeli soldier who was walking around, climbing around in Israel. He goes up on top of this hill, and he sits down, and he happens to kick the dirt, and he sees something shiny there, and he he just digs around it, and he finds this guy. It is a bull that is about seven inches long and about five inches tall. Uh, Here's another picture of it. And he goes, takes it back to his kibbutz, and they put it in the cabinet where they put all the stuff that they find when they're walking around. And my Israel archaeology professor, Amahai Mazar, actually went to this kibbutz one day, and he sees this on display in this kibbutz uh, uh, display case, and he goes, um, would you mind if I look at the bull? You know, and he looks at the bull, uh, where did you find this? tells him the hill. 
Amahimazar excavated for two seasons on that little hill. It turns out that it was not ever uh, inhabited, okay? There was no houses or anything there, but it was a shrine that the Canaanites had set up in the time of the judges, at the time of Gideon, okay? And that it turns out that they worshiped Baal in the form of a bull, and so that's why these bulls are so important is that you have these various kinds of depictions of Baal as both the storm god, he's holding up his hand, and also as a bull, you know. And I still remember my Israeli professor, Ami, he would say, yes, my bull, my bull. You know, he talked about this thing, you know. Uh, the, the Israelites were engaging in the very things that the Canaanites were doing. So now let's look at this unlikely faith of one man. Verses 28 to 32, the community now confronts Gideon for his political incorrectness. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. So the altar's broken, the wood of the Asherah's busted up, the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built and they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they'd searched and inquired, they found a video. Well, no, they didn't, but they figured it out, right? They said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. For you boys and girls, I know that you think that video has existed forever, but this was back before they even had video, okay? But they had investigated and found out that Gideon had done this thing, and then the men of the town said to Joash, that's Gideon's dad, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Now, mind you, Joash, it's his altar. But the community is so freaked out by this, it doesn't matter who the altar belongs to. They're determined we've got to kill Gideon for what he's done here. Joash said, verse 31, to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself because his altar's been broken down. Therefore on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. What's going on? Well, the community finds out who did this. It's Gideon. And then they go to Gideon's dad and go, we got to kill Gideon because he's, he's destroyed the Baal altar that belonged to uh, uh, Gideon's dad, Joash. And Gideon's father, Joash, now raises some questions. He says, oh, so you're going to fight for Baal now? Are you going to save Baal? Some kind of God you have if he needs defending like that. Uh, and then he gives a threat. If you defend Baal, you're going to die in this movement of revival here. There's a revival happening to the, to the real and true God. And if you, jo if you, if you, if you fight against this, you're going to die. And then he adds this. And if Baal was a real God, let him fight for himself. Because it was his altar that got broken down. Where is Baal to fight for himself here? And so... Gideon gets a nickname that day, and the nickname is, Let Baal Contend for Himself. Isn't that fun? And so, in verses 30 to 35, we see the marshalling for war. 
All the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the East came together. That is, they heard about this revival movement and they think we got to put it to an end real fast. And they crossed the Jordan and camped at the Valley of Jezreel, same spot where we saw the Deborah and Barak battle take place. It's where you see a lot of battles in the Middle East, a lot of battles within Israel. And the spirit of the, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manassas, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. The marshalling for war. The enemy sees a threat. Tensions mount. They gather, meeting in the Jezreel Valley. And it seems impossible to us at the beginning of the story, but now we have the Spirit of God involved. The Spirit of the Lord, it says, clothes Gideon. It means... The Spirit of the Lord is preparing Gideon for a great work of God. And Gideon now does what he can do. He sounds the trumpet of alarm. And his clan, remember the weakest in Manasseh, follows him first. It's the Abizrites. Followed by Manasseh and then some surrounding tribes, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali also come to his aid. When we embrace the presence of the Lord, fear is defeated. Now, what do we, what do we make of this? How do, we, how do we take this home to live our lives? First of all, when we try to take life on ourselves, we make tiny gods out of our world, tiny gods that cannot take away our fears. And when we do that, we end up questioning the true God. That's when all the why questions come. And it's when, where is God in all of this? And the how, how is he going to do it? And the if questions overwhelm us. And while you looked at the first couple pictures of Ami's bull, you probably thought, how quaint, how utterly ancient that there would be people who would embrace a five-inch by seven-inch bull and worship it. But my friends, we make similar gods, just as weak, and we end up asking of the almighty, powerful God of the universe the same questions that little, weak Gideon asked. Michael Wilcock, who is a friend of mine, wrote a commentary on Judges, and here's what he said, the gods have not changed, for human nature has not changed. And these are the gods that humanity regularly recreates for itself. What do we want? If we're modest, security and comfort and reasonable enjoyment, those are the gods we fashion for ourselves. If we are ambitious, we create gods of power and wealth and unbridled self-indulgence. In every age, there are forces at work which promise to meet our desires. Whether political programs, do you worship a political program or philosophy? Is that your bull? Or economic theories? 
or career options or philosophies or lifestyle options or entertainment programs. They all have one feature in common, Wilcox says. They promise that they can make our lives better than we can make them ourselves, yet at the same time, they appear friendly to our manipulating them so that we can get what we want without losing our independence. Here is, Wilcock notes, spike way of conclusion, the enemy among us. We say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and controls our heart. When we embrace the presence of the Lord, fear is defeated. I want to conclude this morning by sharing with you a panorama of scriptures because this isn't just a theme that happens here in Judges 6 when we embrace the presence of the Lord, fear is defeated. It is a theme that sounds with regularity throughout the pages of the Bible. And I want to take you on a little journey. Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, God speaking to Moses who says, I can't do it. Uh, I, I, I can't do it. I can't talk. I can't do stuff. I send somebody else. God says, but I will be with you. And this will be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people of out, of, out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Or Numbers 14, 9, when the people of Israel had gone up with the, ten, the 12 spies and 10 brought back, oh, there's giants up there, we can't take them. And there's a debate about whether they should do it or not do it, and they end up deciding not to. But in the middle of that debate, there's these words, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Or just as Israel is about to enter into the promised land, Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Or David, when he became king, 1 Samuel 18, and David had success in all his undertakings because the Lord was with him. Psalm 23, the most famous psalm in all the scripture, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. When Judah was on the threshold of being utterly destroyed by the Assyrians in the 8th century BC, Isaiah speaks through the, the, the Lord speaks through the mouth of Isaiah, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Even after Judah was destroyed by the Babylonians and they're just freaking out over the fact that their entire world has been utterly devastated through the lips of Jeremiah, the Lord says in Jeremiah 42, 11, do not fear the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. Luke 1, 28, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Mary and says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Joseph has a dream 
The angel appears to him, do not, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Philippians chapter 4, Paul exhorts the people of the church of Jesus Christ, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your requests to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is that there's any commendable or anything excellent, there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. One day, the Lord Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will forever be with the Lord. Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is the new creation, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then one more text. Jesus, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. When we embrace the presence of the Lord, fear is defeated. How do I embrace this presence of the Lord? Let me suggest to you four ways. One, God knows you and loves you. If you're overwhelmed by fear, know this. God knows you and loves you just like Gideon. He even knows how feeble you are to trust him, just like Gideon. <laughs> Secondly, God sent his son to be king because he rules everything. And you can trust his rule, even when you're in the middle of a wine press and thinking, this is a mess. Why has all this happened? Thirdly, when you trust Jesus, you have eternal life. When you trust him to forgive you of your sins by what he did at the cross, when you throw your lot in with Christ and say, I got no other place to go, I'm trusting you alone, Jesus, you have eternal life. And lastly, nothing can harm you eternally. Nothing. When we embrace the presence of the Lord, fear is defeated. Father, take these words, bring them close to our hearts. Help us to walk with you. Teach us 
to embrace your presence so that fear is defeated. In Jesus' name, amen.